Hi, welcome to the Times of Israel's Daily Briefing. It's Thursday, December 1st, and I'm Jessica Steinberg. I'm joined today by Knesset correspondent Carrie Keller-Lynn and investigative and features reporter Ina Lazariva joining us for the first time. Hello, good morning to you both. Hi. Hello. Hi there. So what are we talking about today? We'll discuss the latest with religious Zionism leader Betsala Smotrich, why there are so many ministries in this new government, the world of chess, and the new arts campus in downtown Jerusalem. Before we jump into it all, we're going to take a quick break. Do you or your clients have a commercial collection matter that's going nowhere? The Sarachuk Law Firm specializes in the most challenging collection matters, whether it is a single matter or a portfolio of cases. They are based in New York with relationships around the world. Sarachuk's proprietary databases and tried and proven methods have earned them an unmatched reputation for success in getting their clients what they're owed. They work on a contingency fee basis, so they're only compensated when they succeed. The Sarachuk Law Team strongly supports Israel. You can reach the Sarachek team at www.sarachecklawfirm.com. That's S-A-R-A-C-H-E-K lawfirm.com or at 646-403-9775. The proceeding is an attorney advertisement and past results are no guarantee of future performance. Okay, Carrie, talk to us about Batsala Smotrich and the very likely possibility that the religious Zionism head will rotate as finance minister with Shas leader Aryeh Derry, not becoming defense minister, which was one of his initial requests, but there's, I know, so many other things that are out there as possibilities for him right now. Tell us what you know, please. So it was reported last week that Smotrich would likely split the finance ministry with Derry, who leads Shas. Um, a specifically interesting choice, of course, because Derry, although he's been pushing to get the finance ministry, is currently serving a suspended sentence for tax offenses. What is really interesting is there seems to have been a breakthrough finally in negotiations between Smotrich and Netanyahu, who leads the Likud party and is our presumed next prime minister. The two have kind of been at loggerheads ever since Netanyahu received the mandate to form a government uh, earlier, uh, I guess it's now last month since this is December 1st, mostly over roles, unclear if policy, they've really had some real big divisions here. But what's interesting is that it's shaping up that much like in the deal that Netanyahu's Likud made with far-right Otsma Yudit under Bengvil, Smotlich will also receive an expanded sort of, of finance ministry. He's trying to get um, units that deal with settlement moved under his control. Most contentiously, he's pushing to try to get the civil administration in the West Bank moved to his control. Uh, Likud has kind of said in, uh, very vaguely last week that it would not do this. Um, so we've seen some movement. The biggest tangible thing we've seen so far has been a half win for Likud. Smotrich has agreed to Likud's request to sign the request to switch uh, the Knesset speaker. This sounds very esoteric, but in practice, what it means is that Likud can control the legislative agenda once it switches the Knesset speaker. However, now that it's kind of cleared this landmine with Smotlich, it found another with United Torah Judaism, the Ashkenazi Haredi Party, which is now bickering with Likud about its own roles and refuses to sign this request. So once again, Likud has made progress in one area and finds itself stonewalled in another. 
Carrie, what does it really mean in terms of the Smotrich-Netanyahu relationship, the fact that they've gotten to this point at this moment? It remains to be seen because we must remember that Smotrich is fundamentally an ideologue. Smotrich is the politician that blocked Netanyahu from forming a government 18 months ago when Netanyahu was pursuing Ram, the Islamist Arab party, to fill out his then potential coalition. And Smotrich put the brakes on it and said, no, absolutely not. And they ended up moving to the opposition and handing the reins over to Lapid. And so I think Netanyahu is looking at the situation where, yes, um, his presumed coalition won 64 seats at the ballot box, but he finds himself in this very uncomfortable position of being the leftmost party in a very far-right and ultra-Orthodox and religious coalition. And he's now going to have to rein in his partners. And we're already seeing the difficulties that are coming up as they are asking for more authority, more policymaking perspectives over contentious issues such as the West Bank Jewish settlement security. Okay, thanks for that. You've also got a piece in the works about the creation of ministries, many ministries, uh, as often happens with a new government and a complicated coalition. Tell us what we're going to be seeing in that piece. We're actually seeing this play out very much right now. We have this really interesting dynamic in Israel in such that because we are a small parliament, 120 members of Knesset for about 9 million people, it's possible to have large governments such that you have every other member of the coalition, you get a ministry. And that's the current, they call it a key in Hebrew. That's the, certain, that's the key they're working with now, the legend that for about every two uh, MKs a party has, they'll receive a ministry. And so we're looking at a coalition of 64 MKs and perhaps 32 ministries, uh, not to count deputy ministers, committee heads, other different kinds of, of roles that are being doled out. Um, so Israel's small parliament sort of enables this, but we've seen that politically it's also quite it's become quite expedient. You know, I was reading Netanyahu's book over the weekend and he has this great line and he says, you know, when I first came in 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 1996, I wanted to reduce the number of ministers. And so he did, he reduced it. And then he found that he was unable to hold a government together because politicians in Israel don't want to be lawmakers. They want to be ministers. When you're a lawmaker in Israel, you don't really have so much individual power. You're under your party head. But as a minister, you have your own sort of fiefdom. Uh, And so what Netanyahu found was it was better to, in his words, it's better to spend a couple hundred million shekels um, to make all these ministries, which may or may not be relevant, rather to spend a couple billion shekels and have another election because your government falls apart. And so we saw the last government, I believe, had 27 ministers sworn in. Of course, it only lasted a year, waiting to be seen if, if 32 is the number to give us four years of stability. That's interesting. It's sort of like how Israelis like to be called professor or doctor and minister seem to be the honorifics that really matter. And they get very frustrated because the Times of Israel does not uh, call anyone a doctor unless they're a medical doctor. Exactly. This is true. This is true. All right. Good stuff. Thanks, Carrie. We're going to take a quick break. When we're back, Ina will tell us about chess as a metaphor for many issues out there. The world we live in isn't perfect, but it doesn't get better on its own. That's where the work of activists comes in. Whether it's environmental justice, animal rights, or disability advocacy, there are people all around the world striving to make it a better place. That's where All About Change comes in. Host Jay Ruderman talks with activists about how they do what they do and what inspires them to keep going. Because activism is all about change. Listen to All About Change wherever you get your podcasts. Okay, so Ina, fill us in. Your first batch of articles really 
have taken chess and looking at many of the world's most complex issues, including female power, Ukrainians, and a couple of other matters and details. Tell us what you've been writing about and who you've been talking to. Yes, well, last week in Jerusalem, it was the World Team Chess Championships. And uh, and I showed up and I didn't, I didn't expect to uh, come up with quite so many interesting events going on. But it turned out, first of all, that I found a team from Ukraine. Uh, the team from Ukraine uh, were made up of people who are involved in various aspects of the war effort, including one uh, active soldier who also serves as a chaplain and a chess player. So um, I talked to him in particular. His name is Igor Kovalenko. And he actually came to Jerusalem uh, just a few weeks after being dismissed uh, from the army uh, for, for medical reasons. Uh, he was dismissed temporarily. He had a knee operation. And he was very frank about his um, his experiences uh, in the war. He, he was drafted in uh, spring, early summer and sent to the Donetsk region where he described the conditions as pretty harrowing. Um, they're serving in constant shifts, very, very few breaks, 70 days in a row on being on duty. And he says um, it's grueling for everyone. Uh, his role as a soldier is also complemented by his role as a chaplain. So that means that many of uh, other soldiers are coming to him for advice on uh, ethical matters and uh, things they encounter in the war, how to deal with the stress. So it's incredibly hard. What was his take on Israel-Ukraine, the constant discussion and debate about Israel? That should it give arms? Should it not give arms? They were unequivocal. They, uh, I mean, they were, uh, of course, they mentioned Israeli um, humanitarian aid to Ukraine, but they said we really, really need uh, military assistance from Israel. This is this would help us enormously, and it w- it's also uh, good for Israel to help to help us. And um, yeah, that everyone I spoke to from the team was was adamant about about this and um yeah it's a, it's a huge issue because they see the repercussions on first of all themselves but also on their families on civilians wives children and others who are currently su- suffering the effects so right now you also spoke with the first israeli woman captaining a chess team which seems shocking to me that in 2022 we have the first israeli woman captaining a chess team tell us about that yeah, this is Ilana David, and she's a remarkable woman. Uh, the thing about this chess championship is you walk in and it's just a sea of men. You, you don't see any women. And I checked, is this a men-only championship? No, it's open to women. So why are there no women? Crazy. Uh, and in walked Ilana David, and she's like, I'm ex- exasperated by this. You know, I am I feel like an exotic bird every time I walk into a into a room like this and but she's had this most of her career she began playing in Azerbaijan um, as a child and she actually uh, used to play al- alongside Gary Kasparov they used to travel to championships together she also had something about the Queen's Gambit about the Netflix show you commented about that as well yeah what was, was particularly interesting is she was talking about her role as the only woman as the, uh, the first ever and only so far uh, captain woman captain of a men's uh, chess team in Israel and she mentioned other cases of of, uh, you know, prejudices and outright defamation. So, for instance, um, there is a, an amazing Georgian chess champion, Nona Gabrinashvili. She was the first chess grandmaster in the world amongst men and women in 1978. And in the recent Netflix series, The, the Queen's Gambit, she was actually mentioned in it, which is fantastic. But they got it wrong. They said that she had never faced men. And so Nona Gabrinashvili took them to court. And uh, the results are not quite clear, but the rumors in Tbilisi are there's, there was a substantial settlement uh, paid to her by Netflix for the mistake. And there are um, constant cases like this, if you look it up, um, that keep on happening. So 
this is one of the things that Ilana David said that there's um, discrimination and social barriers that continue, unfortunately. And in the chess world, interesting. Yeah. Okay. Thank you for that, Ina. I'm also going to mention a recent piece of mine about the new arts campus in downtown Jerusalem. It's home to four art schools that really were scattered all around the city, including uh, the Sam Spiegel Film School, which used to be in the southern end of, of Jerusalem in Talpiot in a very industrial kind of building. This whole effort was begun by the former mayor, M.K. Nir Barkat, who was trying to draw students to downtown Jerusalem, much like the Upper West Side's uh, Lincoln Center of New York City did in the 1960s. As well, they put the Lincoln Center and the Juilliard School for the Arts in the Upper West Side, and that's what really turned that neighborhood around into the very vibrant, lively, living neighborhood that it is today. So accordingly, uh, a big portion of the $50 million that it took to build this campus came from New York Federation, which has always had a, a very symbiotic and supportive role for the city of Jerusalem. Anyway, so this campus is obviously mostly a good thing. Uh, like I said, leaving this pretty dingy building in Talpiot for this brand new campus. Hundreds of students are milling around now They in the nearby cafes. There's a very youthful, lively feeling in, Jerus in downtown Jerusalem, which can sometimes feel a little grim. But one thing that didn't happen is that the planned student dorms that Barkat wanted were instead switched to young couples housing, like very small 35-meter apartments that are really not meant for students, that are much more meant for a young couple starting out. And in Jerusalem, that generally means young ultra-Orthodox couples. So that is not necessarily what Barkat was looking for when he was trying to turn over downtown Jerusalem. We'll obviously see who ends up living in those apartments. It's also notable that most of the faculty for Sam Spiegel and probably for the other schools, who I haven't spoken to yet, come from Tel Aviv on a daily basis or a weekly basis. Um, but there's also a lot that has come out of Sam Spiegel, named for the producer who helped create three Oscar-winning films, including Israel's latest pick for the Oscar film foreign film nomination, Cinema Sabaya, about a group of Arab and Jewish women taking a filmmaking course. So just to make that all clear, Cinema Sabaya was created by a young director named Orit Fuchs Rotem, who will be featured, and I'll be interviewing her at an English language screening of Cinema Sabaya next Tuesday night, not at one of Sam Spiegel's screening rooms, but at Guest Planet in Jerusalem in the southern end of the city. If you haven't bought tickets for that, please do. Yes, Planet next Tuesday night. In the meantime, thank you, Ina, and thank you, Carrie, for being with us today. Thank you. Thanks so much. And we'll be back on Sunday with another daily briefing. We don't have a Times Will Tell tomorrow, but feel free to listen up to one of the podcasts that have been featured in the last couple of weeks. Take care and have a good day. Thanks for listening to the Times of Israel's Daily Briefing. And thanks to our producer, Gilad Brownstein, and to Gili Amar for this out-of-this-world music. You can find us daily wherever you find your podcasts. And on our mothership, timesofisrael.com. Like what you hear? Consider rating us on Apple Podcasts or Spotify to spread the word. And be sure to check out our weekly feature, Times Will Tell, released every Friday. Until next time, Shalom. Shalom.